This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. The Green New Deal is not new. At times, it's not particularly green, leading to a horrible deal for the people whose lives have paid for the environmental destruction that is causing climate change. The concept of the Green New Deal has been around for a generation, at the very least, with many incarnations along the way. Some have not been that green, refusing to acknowledge that we must completely change our agricultural system, for example. And as the global south and working class have gotten the short end of the stick for so long, suffering as the global north celebrates in luxury without addressing global inequality and poverty, the Green New Deal is no deal at all, only a continuation of the normal of exploitation at the cost of others. As our guest today argues, a Green New Deal that is not anti-capitalist, that is not anti-imperialist, that is not anti-colonialism, that is not anti-globalization, is no deal at all. Without addressing these real causes of planetary environmental destruction, your deal is not green. In fact, it's just a legitimation of the planet's ongoing destruction. But there is an alternative, and we will learn all about it in a few when we speak with Max Isle author of A People's Green New Deal. Max is an associated researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment and a postdoctoral fellow with the Rural Sociology Group at Wageningen, if I can pronounce that correctly, maybe not, University. Max has contributed to a number of journals, including the Journal of Peasant Studies Review of African Political Economy and Globalizations, and is an associate editor at Agrarian South and Journal of Library and Society. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Isle. That's Max A-J-L. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Egon Sheely, I believe, with Alex Jerry in the background. Egon, how was your weekend? My weekend was amazing. Uh, did some uh, urban spelunking like I was 19 and uh, didn't hurt myself, so I'm going to count it as a win. Where'd you go? Uh, you, there's a uh, park called Big Marsh on the south side. It's like 103rd and Stony Island, and uh, yeah, there's uh, an old steel factory down there. So you went inside this old steel factory and were, like, cave diving? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> it was, it was. You know, we are doing a photo shoot and, uh, you know, it was like old times. That sounds like fun. My weekend hanging out with the unvaccinated was a logistical nightmare. As soon as we hit the road to go to a ceremony honoring the person who is technically not my father-in-law, as I am not married to my girly, as soon as we hit the road, the GPS app on our phone died, not that we needed it to get from point A to point B to point C, but we'd never been to Point B before, a Hyde Park pizza place where we had to pick up my non-father-in-law's favorite pizza from when he was a student at the University of Chicago 60 years ago. Still, we had uh, no trouble finding it and getting back on the highway, but without GPS, you have no idea what upcoming traffic is like, listening to traffic and weather together on the eights on the radio. That's a nightmare, and you definitely have no clue as to where road construction is or if there are any speed traps that are set up by police. Downstate and back, we had no use of our smartphone, and it sucked because we hit every traffic jam possible, including a turned-over car on Lakeshore Drive that was taking up three of the four southbound lanes Friday night for hours, which almost made us miss the event we were supposed to be attending. 
Luckily, we got there with 10 minutes to spare. Not enough time to put on better clothes for the event. But one of the honorees wore shorts and flip-flops, so what are you going to do? More importantly than any of that, Egon, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab? (laughs) What's leaking out of your lab? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. By the way, we got a great great suggestion for a new piece of This Is Hell merchandise from a listener, and we will be sharing that with you after our talk with Max Isle on the People's Green New Deal. And if you are a fan of our outro with Wesley Willis talking about his demon, and not everybody is, you'll want to hear the swag idea from listener Chris. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorton and the Moment of Truth as we do each and every week. Egon will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab? What's leaking out of your lab? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. Cure, weekly hangover. This is hell, and Egon has this week's hangover cure. I know you do. I'm positive of it. That's right. <laughs> this week's hangover cure is... Breaking news, and it is bread, lots, and lots of bread. At the Bend, Oregon Bulletin, website writers David Jasper and Mackenzie Whittle team up for a journalistic tour de force headlined, Try These Hangover Remedies for Your Aching Noggin. <laughs> In that story, the two collaborate the two collaborate to inform us, quote, skip the heavy 18-wheeler special breakfast full of greasy goodness, which may only make nausea worse. Instead, have a bagel or some toast. The saying is that the bread helps soak up the alcohol in your stomach like a sponge, but in reality, it seems to just help you not want to hurl your guts out with the blandness, and it can keep your head from feeling too huge by helping out your blood sugar levels. Honestly, toast is better than meeting those margaritas again, this time at the bottom of your porcelain throne. That's some journalism, huh? Oh yeah, that's some <laughs> that's some hard-hitting journalism. I'm glad two people got together to write that. You know, I mean, it, it's always better better with a friend, you know. So that's some writing at the Ben Bulletin, and this week's Hangover Cure is bread, and that was breaking news from the Ben Bulletin yesterday. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help with our horrible business model. Help out your friends here at This Is Hell. By subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Each and every week you get a new monologue from me, plus a classic archived interview that is not available anywhere else online. Last week was a particularly brutal week here on This Is Hell. As I explained at the beginning of Friday's Patreon podcast during my monologue, from a conversation on the CIA's capital venture firm. Yeah, the CIA has a capital venture firm, and we don't know where they're investing their money. And how it funds startups, including those owned by Oracle, which created surveillance software that ended up being sold to China. 
to the ongoing armed violent colonialism taking place at this moment in the United States, a colonialism that never ended, that is being imposed on Native culture by folks like the Bundy movement and the January 6th Capitol crowd to a not-so-optimistic view on media reports that the pandemic is over and ending with a talk on the other Nuremberg trials that let German industrialists and capitalists of all sorts offer the crimes against humanity, from funding the Nazis to playing a role in the Holocaust. It was a pretty rough week here on This Is Hell, but every conversation is worth going back and listening to because last week's guests blew my mind. So we revealed the questions we did not get to ask during on-air discussions last week. And during the monologue on Patreon, we revealed something else. The new, yet tentative, date for the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and art show called This Is Art. There will also be live music, there's gonna be food served, allegedly, supposedly, apparently, if all goes well, as we are still very much in a holding pattern at this moment when it comes to having throngs of people partying together. We also played an interview from the beginning of 2009's school year when we spoke with Danny Weil, who had just posted a three-part series on charter schools for Counterpunch, which included the articles Neoliberalism, Charter Schools and the Chicago Model, Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, Like Bush's, Only Worse, the Charter School Hype and How It's Managed, and the Future of Charter Schools. Danny explained how charter schools were bipartisan and their continuing spread was inevitable. It's a reminder of how bipartisanism can be dangerous to things like a public education and how devastating it can be over a 12-year span. But you can only hear the rambling of someone who went through all of last week's shows... (sighs) just barely made it through all of last week's shows and find out the tentative date of the This Is Hell 25th anniversary party and have access to our 2009 interview warning us about the proliferation of charter schools, you can only get all that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Okay, we're not that annoying. We're not going to paywall our tentative date for our party. However, Patreon subscribers did hear it first. So, everyone... The party's new tentative date is Saturday, September 18th, 2021. And as always, that will be held right here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's Saturday, September 18th, 2021. Again, if all goes well. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon, Tomas and Todd. Thanks, Tomas and Todd. And we got an update from Rob Wallace after a listener who is opposed to getting vaccinated contacted us. And we'll be sharing that exchange later this week because Rob has new advice on our upcoming tentative party. (laughs) Coming up, the many Green New Deals, including the People's Green New Deal. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what's leaking out of your lab, what's leaking out of your lab. And we will tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Too often, Green New Deals are none of those three words. Not green, with no new ideas, and hardly a deal for the people 
living on this planet. But there is another kind of a Green New Deal that can actually save us from the ravages of climate change and the planetary destruction that is currently taking place. Here to tell us all about it is Max Isle, author of A People's Green New Deal. Welcome to This Is Hell, Max. Thank you so much for having me. And real quick, I want to thank Rob Wallace for enlightening me about Max's work to make certain that we would have him on our show. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Isle. That's Max A-J-L. In April, we spoke with climate data analyst Ketan Yoshi, who had just posted an article describing Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies' carbon footprint, which is growing fast. To you, what explains why there is a growing, uh, pro- why there is a prevailing belief, which you describe as a hallucination, that we are in a post-industrial economy of a capitalism severed from the world of things. Why is that such an attractive thing to believe? Uh, it, It suggests that we can basically invent our way out of the climate crisis, that there is a uh, secular, but also in its way, theological tendency that, that, uh, or, uh, deliverance coming through which if we invent a sufficiently advanced and renewable, and sustainable and light footed technology uh, that is ever more efficient in its terms of resources, rather than uh, hitting some kind of limit where it's still going to use a certain amount of resources, uh, it will, in fact, approach hitting zero resources. And therefore, we can continue the process of unlimited accumulation of capital and in that way produce a big enough pie so that everybody can get their fair piece. So it solves uh, all the fundamental problems of our world uh, by putting faith in technology to do the work of social struggle and the social change which follows social struggle. And you write about Amazon at the beginning of your book, and your book isn't just about Amazon, but you use it as a really good example of the destructive capacity of capitalism. And you write that Amazon is part of a high consumption economy based on planned obsolescence. It depends on ensuring people buy what Amazon sells, a deliberately forged culture of consumption, personal loans, and personal debt and manufacturers, which cannot be repaired except at enormous debt. Consumer electronics and worldwide delivery systems need a huge network of gas stations and publicly subsidized rows. Nearly Instant delivery requires a devastated workforce in the core, which will deliver even when the post office does not. Furthermore, Amazon relies on a certain way of organizing the human relationship with the environment. And there's a huge front page article on today's in today's New York Times that goes on for pages and pages about the exploitation of Amazon workers during the pandemic. What keeps us from seeing that destructive capacity of organizations, of corporations like Amazon? Why do even those who are completely aware of how devastating Amazon is as contributing to a culture of hyperconsumption based upon obsolescence, debt, debt exploitation, and so on, why even those who are fully aware of Amazon's impact, why do so many still use Amazon? Well, so many still use Amazon because it's 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 quite convenient and it increasingly has monopolies on a lot of things. It's uh, it, it controls uh, the used bookstores uh, are basically have to go through Amazon if they want to reach an audience. Uh, the there aren't analogous ways for people to access uh, that quantity of books, for example, uh, 
the, you know, if, if people want to uh, have a new book, I mean, my book is for sale on Amazon too. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a well-known phenomenon where people, uh, it's been written about extensively where people become inscribed in the process of uh, domination uh, is, is part of it. That's at least half the equation. The other half of the equation, of course, is that uh, people who are, living in the the United States or Europe, where uh, Amazon is very active, uh, although it does deliver elsewhere, are in some way or another used used to uh, this kind of imperial uh, mode of life. Now, this uh, does not mean to suggest that there's no role for people living in the wealthier countries in a transformative process of change. But it does suggest, uh, in line with what people like Samir Amin have suggested for a very long time, uh, and really going back to, to Lenin in his way, that the, the periphery, the poorer countries, are the zone of storms because uh, they are a lot less, they're not able to achieve this kind of systemic social stability. Uh, and therefore, they're much likely to produce more radical or revolutionary movements that then can end up driving social change uh, on the home front. Uh, I mean, this happened in Portugal in 1974, and this happened in the in the 1960s in the United States, um, in the, in an array of examples. Right. So it's uh, it's about thinking about where. Uh, the process of change, both as a question of political subjectivity and action, is more likely to occur. And that happens, of course, not by coincidence, to be paired with a uh, conception of where, uh, which, which places, which geographies and which, uh, which places on the globe are more subjected to environmental destruction, which also, also happens to be the formerly colonized world plus uh, Latin America, also known as the periphery, or more technically also known as the global south uh, in the kind of more uh, common locution that uh, replaced periphery uh, starting in the 90s. But it's, uh, it's all referring to the same thing. It's referring to the fact that, you know, there are richer countries and there are poorer countries. And you just look at GDP statistics and it's still very clear that that's the case. So it is the question then of our personal choice to use Amazon, is that a distraction from the problems that are caused by Amazon? For the most part, yes. If people uh, on a wide scale carry out uh, consumer boycotts, uh, I think it's a perfectly valid thing to do if they have a strategic uh, aim and uh, a a larger horizon that they're built around. I think to the extent that bookstore.com, bookshop.com, I'm sure it's one of the two, uh, replaces Amazon, this is a way of chipping away at monopoly control. And if people actually got organized enough, then these can obviously achieve more systemic uh, political political goals. Uh, I mean, the, the sanctions campaign against South Africa and uh, the current one against Israel also involve consumer boycotts that involve individual change, but it's not really individual, it's harnessed to a broader political project. So I think this is uh, eminently feasible uh, or things like uh, community supported agriculture. These can be woven into a broader process of social change, but 
boycotting or not boycotting or using, uh, you know, restricting it to kind of this individual entering the world, this massive confrontation with monopoly capital and saying, I am going to buy or not buy this or that, whether it be this kind of fantasy object meat or whether it be uh, Amazon. Uh, this is not, in my opinion, how to change the world. Uh, no one's ever changed the world effectively that way. It has to be a collective action. And you write that uh, Amazon's website, it's energy guzzling cloud data servers. It's gossamer logistical systems, which enable same day deliveries tied with a million threads to use of carbon sinks and the atmospheric space for CO2 emissions. These occur without the permission of humanity. Now, this is a pretty depressing question that I was considering yesterday. So if asked, do you think humanity would give Amazon permission to do exactly what they are doing? Because the market would suggest, if not insist, that Amazon has a very high approval rating well i think i think not i think on the one hand i think most people in the u.s for even in the u.s were completely unaware of the this process of dumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and its effects even though it was of course very well known uh, to the oil companies for a long time uh, for a very long time even in the u.s uh, or especially in the U.S., there was a systematic and very successful uh, campaign of climate denialism to the point that books were written about it. And this was uh, this was encouraged and lubricated and facilitated, of course, by the major capitalist newspapers like the New York Times that would kind of offer the climate denialist perspective as a realistic perspective. They would say, okay, on the one hand, there are climate denialists. On the one hand, other hand, there's people who are saying that climate change is actually happening. So uh, this process of enclosure of the atmosphere uh, by uh, through dumping waste in it, right? And basically asserting the property right to the atmosphere through a kind of act of primitive accumulation, you can even call it, occurred without anyone even under, without people for the most part, understanding that there were effects to this process of dumping of waste in the atmosphere. So there was pollution, but it was invisible. People didn't know it was happening. And people also, uh, the common people in, in the US and in the periphery didn't know what the effects of this dumping of waste into the atmosphere would be. They didn't, it wasn't known that it would produce runaway global warming. It wasn't known that uh, this would lead to crop failures across uh, North Africa and that would be wet bulb effects that make are on the verge of making uh, large portions of South Asia uninhabitable, that the monsoons would fail, that you would have, uh, but also that you would have endless days of rain in uh, May and June in uh, New Orleans, which is having its uh, coldest and wettest May and June, I don't know, in a very long time. And people are already commenting about it uh, uh, publicly. So there is a uh, there's a widespread uh, there has historically been a kind of this disconnect between what's happening and what people know about what is happening and the options that people are uh, made aware of in order to respond to what is happening. Amazon and just like a whole bunch of other companies, it doesn't it doesn't have to be Amazon, any of these corporations that are contributing to climate change, uh, they why they always argue that at least we're providing jobs. You know, we might be causing environmental destruction, but we are providing jobs. We're making people's lives better. Why does the providing of jobs seemingly erase what those jobs are and the exploitation that may be taking place? And because even, you know, proponents of the AOC, Markey, Green New Deal, that's even focused on providing jobs. The Bernie Sanders idea was uh, focused on providing jobs. What happens when that focus is on providing jobs above all else, no matter what those jobs are or what they do to the environment? 
I think there's two answers to that. I mean, there, there's a more abstract and general level, and there is a, a more specific argument. I mean, most abstract level, uh, you know, capital isn't doing workers a favor by providing them jobs, right? It's actually exploiting them. Um, it's saying here, I will extract value from you for the profit of my shareholders and or the private owners of my company and its high level managers, and you will perform this labor for me. So the, the discourse of capitalists as job providers, is, uh, you know, it's something that is, of course, very widespread. And it's kind of this uh, this basis of uh, capitalist ideology is that capital has a right to be the owner, the, the private monopoly owner of the means of production. If it has that right, then it's only natural that it should be doing something munificent in providing jobs to uh, working people. So uh, on the one hand, there is this question of, uh, you know, how, how we approach uh, capital. Um, there is also the question of what does it cost to provide a job? Right. So, uh, you know, we can go back to the, the history of this country and, uh, you know, the process of providing jobs and providing land to people uh, on the westward expansion of the United States came, of course, with immense costs. So the way capital organizes uh, production, so when capital provides jobs, it's not simply that capital uh, doesn't really have the right to provide jobs, right? That this is actually an exercise of power, but it comes with huge, huge costs. So providing jobs uh, is part of in uh, for people in the U.S. is part of one historical process, right? It's not like um, this little machine that is only cited in the United States and you crank it up and it does this thing called produce jobs, which is kind of a conception shared uh, both on the far right of the political spectrum, except people who um, and are all the far right of the political spectrum entirely, right? But it's also shared on the progressive end of the political spectrum where people are like, okay, Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want to provide green jobs. And superficially, uh, this is very attractive to people. It's also attractive to people uh, for whom uh, there is a widespread unemployment problem or underemployment problem um, in, the, in the United States and where people are indeed... Uh, having a hard time securing their basic needs, even though there's hugely more amounts of wealth than is needed to provide people's basic needs, even in a wealthy country like the United States, people are like, okay, well, we need jobs. So this is, this is attractive. And it's also attractive to the, to the trade unions who are kind of infudated to, to the Democratic Party. They're like, yes, well, our job is to enhance the ranks of our trade unions, uh, and damn the cost. But we also know that providing jobs uh, requires capital, it requires inputs, it requires uh, basically low cost uh, inputs uh, in terms of raw materials, which have to be maintained at a relatively low supply price in order to supply the requisite profit uh, to, uh, to the corporations that process those materials, whether that be in the third world or in the first world. So providing jobs can come with the cost of, for example, a massive super exploitation uh, of people in uh, the third world, for example, that uh, I was just uh, uh, talking with activists in the Philippines, and they have uh, uh, a lot of testimony of people getting paid 10 cents a day uh, for agricultural work, for uh, commodity export crops in the Philippines, 10 cents a day. Right. This is just 
you know, this is beyond belief. And this is not even discussing the ecological costs of these types of production, right? Which is widespread ecological devastation, deforestation in a country like the Philippines, um, widespread uh, pollution in uh, across South Asia and Southeast Asia and East Asia and so forth. So this discourse of providing jobs actually kind of draws a circle around a set of interests and says, okay, we will take care of the interests of this set of workers, but we, uh, and we want them to identify their interests as the same as the capitalist interest uh, or even the social democratic interest in job creation, uh, rather than seeing their in- trying to tell people and teach people uh, how the interests of unemployed or underemployed or even or poorly employed workers in the imperial core could be identified with the people uh, in the rest of the world, too. Like there's no objective reason that is an impossible project. Some of the rhetoric that you hear from elected politicians when it comes to a Green New Deal is that part of its mission is to protect America's place, America's role in the world. Could a Green New Deal further U.S. exploitation of not only the working class here within the United States, but around the world, including growing inequality and causing more and more poverty? Could a Green New Deal become maybe mistakenly, the latest form of colonialism, if not imperialism? Unless it's challenged, it would it would certainly become that because the, the U.S. is already the, the entire system of accumulation in the United States is based on imperialism. It's based on the super exploitation of workers. It's based on the super despoliation of the environment. It's based on unequal access to uh, world resources and uh, providing some of that in the form of uh, unequal consumption for people at home versus uh, people in the third world. And it's especially based on the uh, massive accumulation of wealth, primarily by people in, uh, by the super wealthy in the first world at the expense of uh, above all people in the third world, but also of uh, many, many poor people in, in the first world. So unless all of these uh, uh, mechanisms and logics of, uh, of accumulation and exploitation and repression are actively challenged in the actual construction of demands around uh, green social transformation, then they will just take on a new form. And this is very much what uh, was actually proposed. For example, if you considered what, uh, you know, the, the original, what was written in the original uh, Marquis Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal proposal that was talking about making the U.S. a leader in the, uh, a leader in high-tech green industries. This is basically a resuscitation of this idea of the U.S. as the workshop of the world, but in this case, basing it around clean tech technology, to which, of course, the U.S. would hold uh, monopoly rights around the patents, the intellectual property regime, which has really been a major mechanism, actually, over the last 40 years of uh, U.S. Uh, accumulation and uh, U- U.S. unequal accumulation. Um, technology is a means of, of, of uh, imperialism. So... This is this is pretty much inevitable. I mean, and it also runs into this question of extraction uh, and it ties back to this question of these kind of post-industrial fantasies of uh, which are also linked to this kind of uh, nascent or emergent or a 
ascendant uh, decoupling discourse in which uh, production can be divorced from the actual use of materials. And this, of course, is a, is a complete fantasy. It, it, it cannot happen. Uh, it, it, it cannot happen fast enough. And uh, for a lot of things, it won't happen at all. So if we look at the actual concrete materials, you know, there are things like lithium, there are things like cobalt, uh, in addition to all the, all the materials that we're well aware of, which come primarily from uh, the third world, which come from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which come from Bolivia, which come from uh, Ecuador. And extracting them is uh, intensive and often destructive process, or always a destructive process. And the people who will pay the costs of that process of extraction are the people living there. And then uh, this clean energy will kind of appear as this magical device that suddenly appears in the United States. And these kind of compromises were, uh, were also uh, in, existent in the Bernie Green New Deal. And I should say, I was very much surprised by how good the Bernie Green New Deal was uh, in at least comparative terms. It was far better than I expected, although it had a huge number of problems to be sure. But part of uh, one of the most telling problems was that it concentrated on uh, electric cars. And electric cars means uh, is a very in socially inefficient use of raw materials in order to produce a socially inefficient way of getting around, which is logical only from the perspective that you don't want to challenge both the labor unions that have their that have their constituency in the car manufacturing industry, and you also don't want to cha challenge the car makers who are going to derive great profit from the sale of those cars. So that's a specific. Uh, that's one example of a specific response that even though it appears green and even though it is agitating for uh, green or at least carbon, uh, less carbon impacting or emitting version of production. And even though it is providing job, talking about providing jobs to people uh, in the United States, it has those positive aspects, the negative aspects, which go unexamined and therefore unchallenged are the way it would rest on this massive extraction and damage to uh, life and environment in Africa and Latin America. And you also point to what the Bernie Sanders, what the AOC Green New Deal seem to omit and how that is a significant problem. Two of the things that you point that they omit are the ideas of climate debt and the way in which we should address agriculture in the coming years in the face of climate change. So what do you mean by climate debt? In case there are people who are listening right now who are not unaware of what it is, what do you mean by climate debt and why is that so important in your opinion to any Green New Deal? So climate debt was a concept which actually emerged from the grassroots uh, social justice and grassroots environmental justice movement uh, towards the in the 2000s. And it actually was uh, amplification of this idea that emerged really in, in 1992 with with the Rio Environmental Summit, where there was this idea that nations had common yet differentiated uh, responsibilities in order to deal with the climate crisis. In other words, if all countries had to get to zero emissions, then they have a common responsibility. It's differentiated because each country has a kind of distinct historical responsibility. Uh, 
climate debt is a way of operationalizing that because once you really look at this question of responsibility, you need to start fleshing it out with some more technical details and historical details. You have to add a lot of uh, flesh to the bones of this concept. What you arrive at is this idea that uh, the responsibility, the, the differential responsibilities are related to the historical patterns of the way that the means of production in distinct nation states evolved uh, or developed in different ways with the surrounding environment. So, to, and that basically is talking in this case uh, about climate debt as, first of all, uh, countries emitted historically very different amounts of carbon dioxide in the course of their historical development patterns. Uh, the United States, uh, Great Britain emitted a huge amount. Now there's quite a contemporary uh, hullabaloo around how much China has emitted. But if you look at how much China has emitted uh, on a historical per capita basis, right? Say going back to 1800 or 1850, then China is only a bit over, I think by now, its, uh, its rightful amount of uh, historical carbon that it could have emitted if the world were uh, to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So China is not, in fact, a major culprit in this respect, although as it uh, continues to uh, grow, then the, the, the panorama starts to shift a little bit, whereas the U.S., Britain, Germany, Japan, are all, Australia are major culprits uh, in not only emitting so much carbon dioxide that they are now causing a massive amount of damage to the world, but furthermore, that... Uh, this very cheap and highly accessible coal and oil fuel development patterns, these are not available to the South anymore if we want the world to survive. That's another issue. And uh, another issue is what's called the adaptation debt in that uh, there's already damage from climate uh, change built in and already hammering the third world. So uh, in uh, Bangladesh and uh, Zimbabwe and uh, Mozambique uh, and uh, Haiti, I mean, there are endless uh, climate disasters that we read about sometimes in the in the, even the mainstream press that are just destroying already the third world and that already incur a further debt, right? So the idea is that our historical world system has actually created a debt owed from the North to the South. And that debt has actually been quantified. Uh, so Bolivia and, and uh, Cochabamba, of course, more broadly, uh, put forward these demands for uh, annual transfers of 6% of uh, GDP to go from the North to the South, from the OECD countries. Uh, to go yearly from the north to the south. So that is about 1.3 trillion of, con of uh, contemporary GDP uh, from the U.S. Uh, it's approximately U.S. military spending. Uh, on a world level, it's about 3.2 trillion of annual transfers. Um, and if you look at the historical climate debt um, and give a carbon price, uh, of you know between fifty and one hundred fifty dollars, you have something like a historical climate debt totaling uh, one hundred ten to four hundred fifty trillion dollars. I mean, these are huge amounts, but they're very uh, cleverly engineered and calculated in the sense that what the Cochabamba Accords and what Bolivia said is that there is no reason, uh, no one can argue that the U.S. can afford to spend a trillion dollars on its military, but can afford to spend a trillion dollars every year to send to the South, not uh, to help break life, but to help make life. Uh, so it's actually eminently reasonable. And this is something that can actually appeal to people in 
the in the global north who also might want a live in a demilitarized republic rather than a heavily militarized and coercive empire. So it's this idea that actually people are owed uh, these payments rather than, uh, and it's certainly not a favor, it's certainly not charity, it's actually part of a political program that allows for north-south developmental convergence rather than accelerating divergence. So why the dismissiveness, it seems, when it comes to agriculture in these Green New Deals? The only thing I could think of is maybe there is a disconnect between the uh, the political culture that is writing the Green New Deal and the people on the ground and concepts like agriculture. Maybe it's because they're on the coasts and they're not aware of agriculture or maybe there's something else. So why do you, in your opinion, why do Green New Deals not address uh, agriculture, which is a huge has a huge impact on climate change? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think, of course, it's uh, it's it's geographic, but it's also uh, cultural and it has to do with uh, longstanding uh, Western progressive bias against agriculture and peasants. Right. And this is built into this kind of uh, modernization, modernization theology, which has really been largely embraced by uh, a lot of the, the Western progressive left, in part because uh, the peasantry uh, was eviscerated. Uh, the U.S. never had a peasantry, of course, but um, uh, in, it's been uh, the number of people involved in farming is, of course, very small. And there has uh, tended to be a bias in favor of this kind of ideal, typical uh, figure of the industrial worker as the person with the strategic insertion into the system of production who is capable of throwing the monkey wrench into the, the factory and in that way carrying out a strategic sabotage. I mean, this figure has been kind of the emblematic uh, figure of uh, a lot of Western left thought for a very long time, right? This is, uh, and I'm sure this kind of image should be familiar to to your listeners. Whereas uh, the even the idea of who makes a revolution uh, in general has not centered the peasant or the agricultural person uh, in. It, of course, in the north and uh, in the way that people think about the south. So. People can't see uh, agriculture and can't see smallholders and can't see uh, the peasantry. And this represents, uh, in some ways, it represents an ideological accommodation to the kind of thought world also uh, of capitalism, right? Because capitalism is like, okay, we're going to empty out the countryside and we are going to replace it uh, with machines. I mean, this has kind of been what has been imposed largely on much of the global south historically right and the only reason that came to be thought of as a good idea is because people didn't really understand uh that it wasn't that wasn't a rational way to support peasant agriculture uh in even in the third world so uh it, so if if it was easy to ignore it in the third world where there's uh you know in uh, Africa and in India, there are still like 40% peasantry for almost 50% peasantry. Um, then, of course, it's going to be very, very easy to ignore uh, agriculture and land management in the first world where demographically and therefore politically, you're dealing with a very tiny portion of uh, the population, right? So 
there are these kind of inbuilt reasons that uh, that it becomes hard to conceive of these as active fields of political struggle and active places uh, or launching points for widespread ecological restoration. Even though, uh, if if one just kind of thinks about it spatially, most of the human interaction with the environment. Uh, with with non-human nature is kind of mediated through agriculture. I mean, agriculture is blanketing the planet. And that in itself is not necessarily a problem as long as it's the right kind of agriculture, right? Um, and, and the kind of uh, the modernization theology says, okay, the only agriculture you can have is an environmentally disruptive industrial agriculture based on using a lot of capital intensive technologies and a minimum of labor. And you want to minimize labor because agricultural labor is bad um, and, uh, and, and is backbreaking. And therefore you want to replace it with technology. If you accept that, if you accept these propositions, then it's only natural that you would want to basically uh, extirpate uh, the populations that are involved in agricultural production in any way, shape or form and concentrate them in cities, which is uh, a lot of kind of developmental uh, developmental prescriptions rest on concentrating the population into cities. Right. And, it's uh, it becomes natural that okay you want as productive an agriculture as possible, which means as capital intensive an agriculture as possible, which means you can also minimize the agricultural imprint on the entire world and let the rest go back to nature. I mean this is uh, this is a distortion, if not a falsification, of the actual history of agro ecosystems uh, and of the kind of human interaction with nature writ large uh, historically in the United States, certainly, or before it became the United States, the U.S. was basically a managed forest garden. And it was the same with uh, Central and South America. I mean, the whole landscape was managed. This idea of a virgin territory is actually a colonial mythology. Uh, these were extensively managed, but very carefully managed by the indigenous uh, inhabitants in order to extract the surplus. And it's not like they were just doing hunting and gathering which is another kind of uh, mythology that's been imposed upon them. They were doing things that looked more like farming and they were doing things that looked less like farming. Um, and, and those kinds of uh, agroecological logics can be uh, first have a lot to offer in terms of land management, in terms of fire suppression, uh, in terms of pastoralism. Some of it is actually being uh, revived out west uh, near Yellowstone uh, in terms of uh, the bison use to, man to manage the landscape. Um, or in different forms in terms of uh, uh, rotational grazing. Uh, and reviving and resuscitating these practices has also been, has also been uh, what's, gone, what's gone on in uh, Latin America and uh, uh, India through the agroecological revolutions there, especially in Cuba. So there are ways of interacting with the landscape that are not corrosive uh, and uh, destructive. And those, in fact, should be the basis, as what I argue in my book, for a kind of renewal of uh, popular, populist, uh, socialist landscape management. And you mentioned how you have no problem with reforms. Reforms are a good thing, but you are 
concerned about something else, and that is reformism. You define reformism as analyses and political programs which refuse to consider that the world we live in and which we analyze and which we want to take part in liberating exists within an ongoing and world-spanning history of class struggle occurring in a divided world. An analysis that refuses to consider that the Sana, or Sheikh Jarrah slum dweller, has an interest in ensuring that any great transition ensures their own liberation and does not account for how accumulation on a world scale rests on the wreckage of Yemen and the wealth wrested from Sri Lankan tropical monocrops is flawed. It leads to reformist politics by aiming only for compromise. Can anyone effectively address the real causes of climate change and ignore the plight of the slum dweller in Sheikh Jarrah, who is under threat of eviction at any moment and has been for generations, if they're not already homeless. Why is it so important for a people's Green New Deal to prioritize the most vulnerable in the world? So there there are a series of uh, interlocking answers to that question. Um, And part of it is that uh, you know, part of it is uh, a principled position that um, it, that everyone has the right to national self-determination uh, and that th- this is the basis for uh, national popular development projects. So kind of when we talk about a Green New Deal in the United States, there's a lot of imperialist elements for sure. Uh, one way of inflecting it or thinking of it in a way that I think allows for us to also conceive of the needs of the rest of the world, right, is to say that, okay, well, we, we also want a national popular development project in the United States, right, to put it that way, um, which, uh, as long as we're not talking about nationalist, uh, but uh, national only in terms of thinking about it just geographically within the sphere, then that's... Uh, that's an okay thing to aim for, but there, there is something else that has to be considered. That something else is uh, that to be able to consider a national popular ecological development process, you need political control over uh, your own territories, your own lands, your own mechanisms of popular planning. You need those things. So that is a constituent element of being able to carry out a national popular process of development planning. So of course, this first of all applies also in the United States where there's uh, indigenous demands for national liberation and land back, which are actually, that then becomes the foundation stone for something like the Red Deal, which is uh, being put forward, right? And uh, and uh, has a widespread appeal to a lot of people. So there's uh, an anterior or foundational uh, maneuver, which we have to accept in, uh, accept the, the justice of that principle, which is basically to, to use a discourse which is probably not so much in vogue today, is talking about national liberation. Uh, national liberation is necessarily part of any broader project, be it a project of socialist construction, be it a project of national popular development, be it a process of dealing with climate change. So when we're talking about uh, someone in Yemen or someone in Palestine, uh, especially in Palestine, I think it has become uh, palpable to many people in the United States that 
what Palestinians need in order to be able to participate in this process of constructing a global just world, they have a national liberation project that they need to achieve or a national uh, uh, a suppression of their national liberation or their national self-determination. That needs to be dealt with, right? And this is the case for a lot of the most repressed people in the world system, right? And that is not separate from the process of dealing with climate change. That's actually a precondition for the dealing for every to be able to deal with climate change in a just and egalitarian way, right? And so, uh, you know, and I think some, to take Palestine as an example, you know, some of that, what I'm talking about may be obscured because there's uh, people talk about in terms of white supremacy or, or apartheid, which are perfectly valid uh, analytics, but may obscure this idea that uh, Palestinians, uh, as with Yemenis, um, as with uh, Bolivians, need to be able to determine the shape of their own future before for uh, making sure that the shape of that future includes attention to ecological concerns, right? And Yemen is facing this U.S.-Saudi uh, uh, famine and invasion, right? So how can they determine popular ecological planning in a free way and deal with those challenges when they just have to get these mercenaries and, uh, and, and planes uh, from stop flying over their sky or uh, Bolivia needs to be able to not be confronting a coup. So this is a kind of interior question. And then there is, for example, this question of climate debt. If you want to demand climate debt and build a political front to receive climate debt uh, from the South, then you need uh, basically to be sovereign. You need, a nation, you need a nation state that can agitate for your interests in places like the United Nations and the G77 and that can make sure that uh, the Paris Accords don't go forward and that you have a much more progressive accords. People can fight for that and it has been fought for, uh, for example, through the new international economic order. You know, the, the international UN system with all its flaws was a mechanism for people to use the gains of political sovereignty and national liberation in order to try to advance towards um, a more just international world system. So it can be done, uh, but it's kind of blocked and, and it's not brought into the conversation, unfortunately. Um, and sometimes it's when it's not brought into the conversation, you have a species of, uh, of reformism where you have pundits who are like, well, you know, the Western working class really doesn't care about those things. Uh, the Western working class is not interested in what's going on in Palestine. The Western working class is not interested in what's going on in Yemen. Uh, the Western working class is definitely not interested in climate debt. Uh, the Western working class is not at all interested in uh, Bolivia. And I, you know, I, it's, I think that this is a, a political choice on the part of uh, pundits. I mean, what, who do they what kind of world do they want to live in? What do they want to fight for, right? I mean, the Western working class is not a uh, Borg where it's taking central command from, uh, you know, one uh, chauvinist uh, element in, um, God knows, you know, in, uh, in, in Ocasio-Cortez's office or what have you, right? I mean, the Western working class is varied and includes, uh, I mean, historically, the Western working class also includes, uh, you know, um, uh, indigenous and uh, black nationalist elements that were in very close relationship with, uh, uh, Tanzania and Cuba, and some of which have still are, right, and Bolivia. So th this is not uh, inevitable that there's some sort of singular mentality amongst the Western working class where they only want reforms that attend to 
a specifically narrowly conceived notion of socio-ecological reconstruction, the, the interest of the working class is constructed in struggle. Um, and so by, by uh, a priori uh, suggesting that certain struggles should not be on the table, uh, even if you want to offload the people who want to offload responsibility and say, well, that's just what the working class thinks. We have to meet them where they're at. Uh, this is actually, you know, this is an abdication of any actual emancipatory horizon. And I think it's very, uh, very common, right? There's a form of resignation or accommodationism where people uh, actually, uh, both out of their own kind of uh, self-interest and their own, uh, you know, whatever the reason for it, and uh, it's usually not, uh, not very... Uh, not very uh, praiseworthy the interest people are accepting some that generally the world as it is cannot really be changed um and that one cannot have ambitions towards a very different world and therefore we should just carry out some small steps to reform this world and to accept that it's not object accepting an objective reality it's actually subjectively constructing a reality that then becomes the only reality that's attainable right and and i think that there is a slippage between those conceptions that we see a lot Max, I've got one last question for you, and I've got plenty of more questions written for you. Uh, well, I wanted to talk about the historical context from which the these Green New Deals emerge. I was thinking it may date back to the Zapatista movement at the beginning of our conversation. You were mentioning how you can go back to the uh, revolution that happened in 1974 in Portugal, which we discussed with Raquel Varela on our show a couple of years ago, and is a fascinating conversation about what happened with the Carnation uh, uprising, uh, the ways in which under capitalism, the most violent are always the most powerful. There are just so many great concepts in your book. And it made me think about, you know, how we can act when it comes to a people's uh, Green New Deal, what we can add to it, what we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, and your discussion about how electoral politics is not the answer to all of this is also really fascinating. But we're not going to be able to get to any of that. Unfortunately, we still have one last question for you. Max Isle is author of A People's Green New Deal. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Isle. That's A-J-L. Your final answer is, or your most recent answer, your last one, uh, really made me think about the challenges that we have. So our final question that we have for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response how do you get people like those here in the United States who benefit from imperialism to engage in an anti-imperialist people's Green New Deal? If they benefit from this, why would they want this to end? You show them that uh, a different world is possible that would uh, allow for a more fulfilling, a more substantially fulfilling life for the most part, and that would allow for such a life to uh, extend to the entire planet, that would extend, uh, secure a good life for them, uh, for their children, for their grandchildren, and that it would seize any of their responsibility in worldwide systemic oppression. And uh, you map it out and you say, these are the choices about what kind 
kind of world you want to live in. Uh, and you can have better health care than you have now under a People's Green New Deal. And you can remove your risks of dying from a cancer plague uh, under a People's Green New Deal. And you can uh, live in a beautiful house under a People's Green New Deal. And one issue is that you might, instead of getting a new iPhone, uh, get uh, have to get your iPhone repaired for the next uh, 15 years. And this might be something that would have to change, uh, change rapidly. So I think, it, I think to put this choice forward through the process of popular struggle and uh, try to say, okay, we don't know exactly what you will have to sacrifice and what you won't. What we know is that there are some very basic things that you will be absolutely guaranteed to live in a non-alienated way in the world uh, and, and uh, have control over your, much more control over your life and over your future and your, your, for your children also. The world will be safe. And from a moral level, you won't be conscripted in this process of destroying other people's lives. I think it's a good option and a good choice to put in front of people. And that's my position. So why do you think there is the assumption that a Green New Deal or doing anything to stop the worst aspects of climate change, to stop environmental destruction, to stop worker exploitation? Why is there the assumption that that would lead to a worse quality of life? It's a created assumption. Uh, there are a lot of uh, there's a fear of it, and there are uh, kind of uh, there are pundits whose job it is to spread misinformation. Uh, they have not examined, for example, things about agricultural productivity statistics. They don't know anything about um, what sustainable agroecology can accomplish. They don't know what can be done and what has been done about sustainable forms of carbon negative agriculture. Uh, this information is both not systematically known, it's not provided, and also it's not examined. And this could be because a lot of people are just pandering to uh, the powers that be. And this is, the, this is what they want to do in order to get a platform. Um, and instead of acting as socialist educators who are researching things to try and understand and to take on the collective process of developing a consciousness of the world in order to change it, they uh, accommodate themselves in order to uh, placate uh, portions of the powers that be in the world and kind of see how they can preserve their own place in that world. Max, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Again, I want to thank Rob Wallace for tipping us off to your work. This is really amazing writing, and our listeners should be checking it out. Again, our guest has been Max Isle, author of A People's Green New Deal. Follow Max on Twitter at Max Isle. That's A-J-L. Thank you so much for being on our show. Do not be surprised if we bug you to be on the show again or to ask you for uh, guest suggestions, because I really would like to have somebody on to talk about the Red Deal. It's not something we've discussed yet. So thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for your questions and your time. All right. Take care, Max. Live from late capitalism, we, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. And if you like what you just heard, Max Isle on a People's Green New Deal, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Egon, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Hey, Chuck, this week's question from hell is what's leaking out of your lab? 
and that it's what's leaking out of your lab? <laughs> we've got several uh, answers to our this week's question from hell. Uh, we've got Roshan CM, who says advertisements in 3D. <laughs> Garrett S suggests all this hashtag swag and hashtag drip. We have no whack wolf who suggests produce in defiance of consumerism for public consumption. Hmm. Hmm, indeed. Uh, this week's question from hell, what's leaking out of your lab? Wally R. says Santorum. We oh, <laughs> that's disgusting. <laughs> it, it truly is. Uh, Mark Allen S. says Detroitum. All right. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Detritus, Detritum. Mm, sounds right. It sounds right. Uh, Fabio AJL says the classic, your mom. <laughs> Gotta love that and answer. That actually works with this. <laughs> What's leaking out of your lab? Uh, that's right. What's leaking out of your lab? Benjamin C says Phlogistone. And Kim G says lots of oops. <laughs> <laughs> is that all we've got so far? That is all we've got so far. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Thanks to Peter who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support and got himself a This Is Hell t-shirt. Thanks, Peter. Also, thanks for the tithing-like commitment of Kilter, who has been kind enough to make monthly donations to This Is Hell, which you can do, too, by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, you can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On June 14th, 1949, 72 years ago to yesterday, Monday, an unfortunate rhesus macaque named Albert became the first monkey in space. Which may be my favorite first sentence in any This Week in Rotten History segment ever. An unfortunate rhesus macaque named Albert became the first monkey in space. As part of their post-World War II rocket research, U.S. engineers locked Albert into the nose cone of a captured German V-2 and launched him from the test range at White Sands, New Mexico. The rocket was not powerful enough to put the monkey into orbit, but he reached an altitude of 83 miles. This was well above the so-called Kármán line, the international convention for the official boundary of outer space defined as 100 kilometers or 62 miles. Albert experienced a minute or two of zero-g weightlessness and appeared to be doing okay as engineers monitored his vital signs by radio. Sadly, though, his parachutes failed and he was killed when his tiny space capsule crashed in the desert. Three more monkeys would also die in similar rocket tests over the next two years. Yet another monkey would land safely only to die of heat stroke while sitting in the desert waiting for the recovery team, essentially boiling in the capsule. The, tra the trajectory of Albert's flight was very similar to the one the world's richest man Amazon multi-billionaire Jeff Bezos plans to take next month aboard his ridiculously penis-shaped rocket. First, unfortunate rhesus macaque, great name for a band. Second, is Ronaldo implying the unfortunate rhesus macaque named Albert was somehow down on his luck when he says unfortunate, had made a couple mistakes, trusted the wrong people, made a 
few bad investments? What is meant by unfortunate? Did he bet on too many nags at the track? Or maybe it was Albert the unfortunate McCock's horrible poker face. Then there's the matter of the U.S. being pretty uncaring to the killing of monkeys. I mean, do you need a monkey for any of these experiments? How did the monkey playing a part in any of these experiments make any sense at all? Finally, there's the very fortunate rhesus macaque named Jeff Bezos and his ridiculous penis-shaped rocket. The best rotten history bits are the ones that provoke the most questions. On June 15th, 1648, 373 years ago today, Tuesday, in Charlestown, Massachusetts, a midwife named Margaret Jones became the first person executed in what would become an extended witchcraft uh, witch hunt, sorry, lasting 45 years. A 45-year witch hunt. That's a long time to be involved in a witch hunt. I mean, the normalization of the witch hunt, had that had to be really, really weird. So-called evidence of witchcraft cited as testimony against Jones included accusations that she had distributed harmful potions, that she had made predictions that came true, and that she had made people violently ill just by physically touching them. Jones was accused of the witchery of accurate predictions, and that has got to be the most American crime ever. I accuse you of taking evidence, coming to a conclusion that actually happened, warning us of what our actions would cause, and being all smarty pants about it. Hang them until they are dead. Once the death sentence was passed, Jones was hanged from a tree. Her husband, also accused of witchcraft, tried to leave the Massachusetts Bay Colony by sea, but was captured aboard a ship, hustled back to the colony, and thrown into prison. Another 13 women and two men would eventually be executed for witchcraft by the colonial authorities in New England between 1648 and 1693. Can you imagine what members of the native population who may have been observing the colonists were thinking? Those colonists must have come off as complete weirdos. Hey, you seen what the colonists have been up to lately? I don't know, are they still up to hunting witches? Yeah, what's up with that? Are they that bored? Finally, in rotten history, on June 16th, 1871, 150 years ago, this Wednesday, tomorrow, former Congressman Clement Vallandigham was a Democrat from Ohio who had supported slavery in the Confederacy while opposing the Civil War, accusing President Lincoln of despotism and proposing radical changes to the U.S. Constitution. So, from Ohio. Yeah, that makes sense. Lincoln, in turn, had called Vallandigham a wily agitator and had him deported to Confederate soil. That's when being wily was a seditious crime. Thankfully, wiliness was decriminalized in the early 20th century, along with being canny, sharp-witted, shrewd, clever, and most importantly, the 1914 Decriminalization of Cunningness Act. From there, Vallandigham had made it to Windsor, Ontario, where he ran in absentia for governor of Ohio, but did not win. After the war, he had returned to the U.S. and officially reaffirmed his loyalty to the Union. And now on June 16th, 150 years ago this Wednesday, Vallandigham was in Lebanon, Ohio, defending an accused murderer in court by arguing that the victim had actually shot himself by accident in a hotel near the courthouse as Volandigam showed fellow lawyers how he planned to reenact the mishap in court. The pistol he was using went off, putting a lead slug in his stomach. 
Vallandigham died the next day, and the jury was so shocked by his death that they acquitted his client, which is probably the best criminal defense ever recorded in all of human history, to the best of my knowledge, and my knowledge is not the best. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Egon, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, on Wednesday, we have law professor Madison Condon on her article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. We'll also be sharing a listener's thoughts on not getting the vaccine and Rob Wallace's response. And do we know anything about Thursday's show? Still working on Thursday, but don't forget we do have our moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin on Thursday. So uh, we already have some excitement there, but we're still working on it. I kind of like Deaf Georgian. That's pretty hot. <laughs> He's a deaf poet, for so sure. So here's the uh, merchandise idea we received this weekend from a listener. This is appropriate because we were just about to play the close for today's show. Chris emailed us writing, Hey Chuck, I've been on the market for new boxer briefs and thought of a good idea for merchandise for This Is Hell. What about black boxer briefs? with the words, my demon, across the backside of them. Just a thought, Chris. Yes, Chris has figured out a way you can actually get my demon on my butt. And of course, we are looking into this with a merchandise person as we speak. But what do you think, listeners? Would you want a demon on your butt in the form of the words, my demon, across the backside of your underwear? Tell us what you think by emailing me at chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Thank you, Egon. Also, thanks to our guest, Max Isle. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guests and assisting, assisting Egon. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is Bread. Lots and lots and lots of bread. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.